Today, I have a chance to interview Hillary Thomas. This name won't mean anything to you until you start to hear her story. She is a woman who joined the United States Army at an unprecedented time when women were being allowed to do some training for the first time in the history of the nation. And as we just described in this episode, I learned that Hillary Thomas is not just a woman who broke the glass ceiling, she placed a demo charge on it and exploded the glass ceiling for other women who came after her. You're gonna love this episode of Unbeatable with Hillary Thomas. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Hillary, thank you so much for being on this episode of Unbeatable with me. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, for the guests that are not familiar with you, we're going to get into your story in just a few minutes. Your incredible um time in the U.S. military, but you and I got connected in a very random way several weeks ago in Houston, Texas, where you stopped and talked to me at the end of a church service, and we met for the first time, and I was just blown away by you. I don't know if I've had a chance to say that to you, but just a very short conversation right after church in Houston, Texas, you really impressed me. Well, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate that. You know, it was, and I'll say, you know, it's a God thing, and to be in Completely honest, uh, I actually did not know who you were. I, I've of course seen Black Hawk Down, but I just did not put it together. And when I was at that Ranger School graduation that you were at on the Friday, and was you know with one of my friends there, and and he's a commander over in a regiment, and yeah. he mentioned you, and I was like, oh wow, that's so interesting. I fly back to Houston that evening and go to church on Sunday and not my home church, but my friend had invited me because you were going to be speaking, and I was like, hey that's the guy. And so I had to come up and introduce myself. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, because you know how I can't tell you how refreshing it is to hear somebody from the military that says, I didn't realize that you're a guy from Black Hawk Down because normally that's what everybody people point and whisper to each other when I walk in the room. So it's, it was really good to hear you say, I didn't even recognize who you were until somebody pointed you out. Yes. Yeah. It took me a minute. Um, so we're going to get into your incredible career. I'm uh, I normally don't title episodes before I do the interview. Usually I let the interview bring out a title. But when I think about your time in the U.S. Army, I think about a woman who didn't just smash the glass ceiling in in one or two areas, but a lady who butt-stroked it. Um, and I think uh, what I'm going to do is try to title this episode uh, Hillary Thomas, the one who has butt-stroked the glass ceiling for women in the U.S. military, and specifically in a couple of really um, impressive roles. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I like that. Although uh, the the combat engineer in me is thinking maybe we need to add demolition yeah, to that somehow right. and just make it a little bit more violent. Put, uh, <laughs> put a small demo charge on the glass ceiling. That's what yeah. Hillary did. Some um, C4. For those of you who don't recognize the phrase butt stroke, that is one of those um, rifle techniques that you learn when you have to fight an enemy hand to hand. Hillary knows this completely. And most of you that have been in the military know that phrase, but smashing the glass ceiling with the, the, the butt of your rifle, or in Hillary's case, placing a small demo charge on it. Yep, just enough. Yeah. Um, Hillary, before you get to the military and the decision to go into the military, let's talk about growing up in Southern California, because you're a California girl, right? 
I am never, you know, before my time in the military, it was never more than 10, 15 minutes from a beach. And according to Katy Perry, that makes you fine, fresh and fierce. Is that accurate? Uh, probably definitely fierce. I'll okay. lean on that one. <laughs> All right. Um, so a little bit, let's describe a little bit about what life was like at home for you a few minutes away from the beach and going to school before you decide to go into ROTC. Yeah. So grew up Southern California. Um, you know, I grew up oldest of three. So I've got a younger brother who's five years younger, younger sister, two years younger. Uh, and my parents, um, parents are amazing. And, you know, probably so much of what I've accomplished today is a result of the way that they raised us. And uh, they're both entrepreneurs. So my dad was a contractor. He has his own construction company. All right. Yeah. So that also, well, you'll see how that plays later on in life, but, you know, grew up helping him out on, on job sites, doing projects around the house, really loved building things. Um, Wait a second. I got this mental image right now of you driving one of the big pieces of equipment on a job site when you were 14 <laughs> years old. Did you get a so, chance to get on the equipment or, or, th or swing a hammer or, or something like that? Definitely hammers, no heavy equipment, um, probably because, you know, could be a lawsuit. Yeah. I don't know if OSHA would have agreed with some of yeah, the Yeah, why the is there a 14 year old girl <laughs> running yeah. the backhoe? But we were, I mean, we love, we did a lot of demo. So lots of swinging hammers, um, lots of hauling, you know, just debris. And um, he definitely, you know, put us, and we, we loved it. I mean, we loved that time with him. We loved working, you know, he'd give us, he'd pay us. And so we, we liked that aspect as well. Um, and then you'll get a kick out of this. My mom was an etiquette consultant and not just, you know, social etiquette, but dining etiquette. Oh my goodness. I would be terrified to come to your house and have dinner because oh. I would be a mess in your mom's presence. Every single, you know, boyfriend throughout high school and college, you know, my friends, they were all terrified to come over for dinner because they were scared of, you know, the, the etiquette lady that's probably going to tear their table manners apart. Uh, but she is really sweet and she loves what she does and she's so passionate about it. Um, but it was, you know, fun fun way to grow up um, with my parents and, you know, kind of seeing them build their businesses. And, you know, we, you know, grew up very active and ne never was a big athlete, didn't really get involved with, in sports. Um, but then, you know, went to public schools. But when it came time to go to high school, uh, my parents, you know, as the oldest asked me if yeah. I'd be interested in going to a, a private high school. And we, we grew up in a Christian home. Um, and so, you know, I was raised in, in a faith-based home, but now had an opportunity to go to, uh, you know, get a faith-based education. Um, and so, you know, thought, you know, why not? Sure. I'll go. Uh, didn't know anyone, you know, but figured it would be an adventure. Yeah, freshman year and you're just starting a brand new school and mm -hmm. private school for that. I bet that was fun. It was fun. Um, you know, I mentioned I, I didn't do sports, but I figured, okay, I got to do some sort of sport. That way I can make some friends before the school year starts. So I'm like, right. what sport can you do that requires zero skill or athleticism? I was like, cross country. Joined cross country. Hated it so much, but made some friends. So it served its point. Um, but it was the first time that, you know, through going out to school, my freshman year, had a great year, sophomore year, um, went on my first missions trip. So this school had a whole missions program. And after Hurricane Katrina uh, hit, oh, yeah. uh -huh. we sent a team down. Down and, to New Orleans, uh, down to the Big Easy. Did you go down yeah, there? Down. I'm sorry? Did you go to New Orleans? I did. Yeah. Yes. Huh. So that was my very first missions trip that I went on. And that completely 
changed everything for me. Um, it, it changed my relationship with God. It made me realize that I really felt like I, the, my purpose, my existence for being was to serve people. Yeah. And so I went on that trip and, you know, as a sophomore, so probably 13, 14 years old, um, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go to school for construction. I'm going to start my own construction nonprofit really? and I'm going to help people rebuild their homes after disasters. And so that was just a huge passion of mine. I went back to New Orleans, um, New Orleans and, and Mexico, building homes in Mexico, I think a total of 10, 10 to 12 times throughout my time in high really? school and wow. freshman year of yeah. college. Yeah. So something that I love to do. Um, but, you know, very early on was, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew exactly what I wanted to go to school for. I knew exactly what kind of business I was going to build, kind of following the, the footsteps of my parents. Um, and I was dead set on that. And my senior year of high school, uh, all that changed. And as you know, the reason we're here today is because we yeah, know that that right. ultimately didn't yeah. happen. But uh, I was shopping with a really good friend of mine. And I was telling her, I was like, oh, Lisa, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be so cool to go to army boot camp? I didn't know what it was called. I was like, army boot camp. Like I saw a line, a, a big sign for like a ladies boot camp. And I was like, wouldn't it be so cool to just go through military training just to get that experience? And she was like, you're crazy. Like, why don't you just join <laughs> yeah. the army? Yeah. If you're <laughs> totally thinking, it's, yeah, it's not just a gym workout. It is kind of a radical, uh, you know, change of lifestyle, but Yes. Yeah. And I, and I was like, and, and that was it. That was the switch that was flipped. And I was like, I'm going to join the military. And I just felt like that was, that was exactly what I had to do. And it, and it's interesting too, because, um, what I didn't mention is that my dad, uh, was actually an air force pilot. So he went to the air force Academy really? yeah. and was a pilot. So he, he served for, I think seven years or so, uh -huh. um, including his flight time lived and flew all over the world but completely completed his military service, got his MBA, started a business before he even met my mom. Yeah. So it was never a part of like our family's uh -huh. culture. My mom, you know, was very clueless when it came to military. I mean, you can imagine growing up in, you know, Beach City, Southern California, uh -huh. with the exception of maybe Camp Pendleton in San Diego, there's really not a military right. presence. Yeah. So I had no idea what I was really talking about or what I was uh, you know, kind of saying that I wanted to do, but that very next day I went to go enlist. So it was, you know, kind of happened fast and, and went down to the recruiter because I didn't understand the difference between an officer and enlisted. I had no idea. I just thought that you'd want to join the military. You, you head down to yeah. the friendly neighborhood recruiting office. Uh, and again, you know, just God guiding my path, you know, I sat down and told that recruiter that I wanted to enlist. And he's like, well, you've already applied to colleges. He's like, why don't you check out ROTC here? I'm going to connect you with this ROTC right. recruiter, Yeah. which I mean, those of us that have a little familiarity about military recruiters. Yeah, the recruiter was pretty awesome for you. Not the same. Pretty, that's not the case for everybody. It is not. So, um, you know, was very fortunate that, you know, and I think it's just God working in it and right. kind of guiding my path, putting the right people, um, in my, in my way that, you know, help steer me to where I was supposed to be. So, um, you know, by a couple months later, I got accepted into Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is another great beach town yeah. on the central coast. Uh, -huh. uh and you had an ROTC program there. So I, I signed up day one and got a scholarship for college and was a contracted cadet from the job. Nice. Why Cal Poly? 
You know, I had a really fantastic mentor in high school and he had gone, and this is actually the, the, the gentleman who led the missions program. He was a chemistry teacher, but then also led the missions program. Uh So we had spent a lot of time with him and his family going on these missions trips and, um, he had gone there and he just talked about, I was always, I always loved the outdoors. Um, and he just talked about what a great place it was to go to school, fantastic education. Um, and for me particularly wanted to go to school for construction. It was one of the best schools for construction. Yeah. And I was going to say, you got a construction management degree from there because obviously construction's in your DNA and your plans are to kind of follow in the family footsteps. Mm -hmm. Um, but thanks for sharing that around the, uh, senior year of high school time, you really felt strongly uh, pulled towards the military. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the end of your ROTC time at Cal Poly. And now it's time for you to prepare to go on active duty. Did you request to become an engineer? I did. There was nothing else I wanted to be. And actually, when I went to go enlist, I, I had at least had the the foresight the evening before to go on to goarmy.com and read about the different MOSs your, and decide, well, yeah, what do your, I want to be? Your answer my next question, because I was going to ask you, did you even know what engineers in the military do? Because that's a very different term in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Army than it is in the civilian sector. Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Jeff, too, because that's something that I definitely often explain to people. What is the difference between army engineering and, you know, maybe real world or real life engineering, as I like to refer to it. Why don't you explain Um, it to the guests who don't know the difference? Yes. So I saw the description for combat engineers and it was all about, you know, enabling passage on the battlefield. So if there was an enemy minefield, we had the capability to make a lane through that Mm. minefield. It was all about putting in defensive obstacles. Um, It was about breaching doors and and manual breaches with, with tools and equipment. And so that just sounded badass. I was like, that's what I want to do. Now I didn't get far enough down the enlistment process to realize that, you know, it was 2008 and I could not have done that if I wanted to, because it was restricted. And that, that exclusion, uh, didn't change until 2015. When did you Uh, finish ROTC? In 2013. Okay. So I even joined, um, when there technically were no female, no, no women that were serving as 12 Bravos, which is the, the combat MOS for engineers. Um, but there was, I felt kind of a little bit of a loophole because all engineering officers. So I, I, I went into my, you know, branch selection process, dead set on engineers, because I felt like it was the, one of the closest ways that I could get to combat. I wanted to be on the ground. I wanted to be blowing shit up. I wanted to be in the fight. And that seemed like a great way to do yeah. it. So, you know, I couldn't branch infantry. I couldn't branch armor. Um, and it's interesting because I don't, it, I, I'm such a proud engineer, um, but it, had I had the chance to, to branch infantry, I'm not, I'm not sure. Cause I, yeah, it would have been loved. a tough choice, right? It would have been a really yeah. tough choice. And back then, you know, it was the only choice. So it made it really easy. Yeah. I'm going to pause for a second and make sure that the listeners understand you are a very intelligent and somewhat athletic woman who is now considering a career in the U S military, or at least trying it out. Mm -hmm. And you've been to the recruiter's office, you've seen the, uh, you know, the videos and all of the promotional material about combat engineers, the guys on the ground blowing stuff up. Great, um, 
description of it. But I want to point out, it's all guys at this point. There are no women who are in this um, world. And this is something that you really want to do. So how does it work out that you get the opportunity as a woman, um, newly commissioned in the army to become a combat engineer? Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of it was, was great time. So I finished my Bullock training. So all engineering officers get kind of introduced to the variety of ways that engineers serve in the army. Um, part of that's combat, but there's also traditional engineering and building and construction that the army engineers Mm -hmm. do. So that, that was definitely an option. Um, but I wanted to, you know, pick duty stations, pick company or pick, you know, brigades to be a part of that were focused on combat engineering. And that's what, that's what I wanted to do. And so, um, you know, I, I was first assigned at Fort Riley, which was actually my, my 15th choice. So the army doesn't always give you everything <laughs> yeah. that you what want. 15th choice. Like there my were 14 15th. other places you would much rather be than Fort uh-huh. Riley, Kansas, but and I put Alaska as my number one choice. Like I thought like, surely, surely not a they'll lot of send you want. up there. Yeah. No, I was headed straight to the Midwest and, um, you know, and, and part of it was timing. So when I arrived my, my unit, it was 2014. I was, you know, technically a, a 12 alpha. So I was allowed to be in you know, branches an engineering officer, but technically wasn't really allowed to be in combat units. Now there were women, you know, in units that were serving in combat mm-hmm. positions and leading combat platoons. However, when I got to my duty station, the prior battalion commander uh, was not letting women. So he was kind of executing his discretion to not let women be in the combat engineering companies. Yeah. So the women engineers that were in that unit were maintenance platoon leaders uh-huh. in, in this engineer battalion. Um, and so myself, and then there was another woman around the same time, we were some of the, you know, we were the, to, we were told at the time, the very first women to go down and to serve um, in these, you know, combat engineering companies as platoon leaders, because we got a brand new battalion commander just as I arrived. And he just did not see any point in, in restricting engineering platoon leaders from serving in engineering companies. Yeah. So let's talk timing for just a second. Um, you finish ROTC right in the middle of the global war on terrorism. U.S. has been involved in Afghanistan at this point for a long time and operations in Iraq were winding down and then they start spinning back up again as ISIS rolls in. Um, and you're showing up as a brand new engineering officer, you call it 12 alpha, but engineering officer, Um, combat engineer officer in the U.S. Army at a time where women were just being allowed for the first time to serve in those roles in the history of the United States. So this is a very significant time for the U.S. military, and you just happened to step in um, to the military at this time. Yeah, it was interesting timing, and it was always so interesting because I I didn't really give much thought to the fact that, oh, I'm one of the first women at first. I was like, I'm just doing what I want to do. I'm doing what I love. And, you know, kind of just chasing this path that that I was most passionate about and felt like where I was called. But then I would get reminded all the time when I would walk into the room of 100 and I was the only it's woman. It's pretty obvious when you walk into the room, you right? You stick out. Yeah. Yes. And, and I would have one-on-one conversations with various men, you know, young soldiers, NCOs, other officers. And they would tell me, Oh, you're the first woman that I've ever worked with. And I'm like, what, really? 
But that was just the reality, as you mentioned, with the, the timing. Yeah, Hillary, I think you and I had this phone conversation several weeks ago, and I told you for maybe my first 10 years in the Army, I never served with a woman, um, mm -hmm. not even close. And it wasn't until going to work at an ROTC department that I was oh, around yeah. female cadets for the first time. Um, and for me, this was a, a learning curve. Um, it, was, <laughs> it really wasn't a challenge, but it was just different. Um, I want to go, we're going to come back in just a few minutes to your first couple of assignments. But, but before mm -hmm. we do that, let's talk Sapper School and then Ranger School. Um, most of the listeners have never heard the phrase Sapper School, so they don't know what it is. Would you describe Sapper School and describe being one of the first women to ever complete the course? Yeah, so... I, I often, you know, for better, for worse, some people get insulted by this, but I say sapper school is just like ranger school. And then the guys who graduate from ranger school are like, oh, there's, there's um, no way. I'm not going to get insulted. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. So, you know, sapper school was a school that started in the nineties combat engineering course, and it was modeled after ranger school. And in fact, in the second part of sapper school, the patrols, they have to be graded by a sapper instructor who is also ranger qualified. So they really try and have this, um, you know, course that is focused on infantry tactics, um, but also, you know, incorporates mm -hmm. engineering to it. Um, and so sapper school is, you know, broken into two phases. Um, it is a, you know, combat leadership course. So the first part of the course is all about teaching and assessing in a extremely stressful environment, a bunch of different skills for that combat engineers would need. So it's, it's repelling, it's set, it's, you know, tying different knots, demolition knots, climbing knots, uh, doing belays and you know, homemade explosives. We learned how nice. to you know, make explosives. Yeah. We, my favorite thing was the daisy chaining of the claymores. Uh -huh. uh, and so you'd learn all these skills. Um, and then it's also an assessment of your physical fitness. So there are timed five, six, seven mile runs. There's of course an entry PT test, uh, probably one of the toughest 12 mile courses, um, in army, you know, in mm -hmm. across the army. Um, and so you go through all of this, you know, training and assessment all under extreme stress. And that stress is provided through very little food, uh, and very little sleep. And they do that, you know, and on top of that, there's a whole bunch of different kind of like psychological, you know, just, just screwing with yeah. you. I can't think yeah. of an intelligent sure. way to say yeah. it right now. I remember I, and I, that's when in some ways I, I sometimes think like the sapper instructors were a little, just a little bit more like sick and cruel with yeah. us. Uh -huh. I, when we would eat during the first, it's broken into two phases, but the, during that first phase, we're still in the kind of garrison environment. Um, and so they would bring out hot chow to us and we'd have to go through a, a ringer of, events to be able to in order yeah, to eat right but when we did they would play they'd bring out these speakers and they would play metal music overlaid with screaming babies overlaid with you know battle sounds and gunfire and i mean and we had five minutes to eat and uh -huh. they would just and they i remember too you know they we went into our patrolling phase and they kind of set out expectations for patrolling phase what the day was going to be like what we were being graded on and, you know, they would tell us, okay, you get one meal a day and we go into the field and we'd had one meal that morning and we finished our lane. It was actually my lane. I was a platoon leader All right. and we rocked it. 
Uh, we, we crushed it. And I'm not just saying that because the sapper instructors came out and told us that was so great. You guys are crushing it. You're working together as a team. Keep this up. You know what? We never do this, but you guys can go ahead and eat, eat an MRE now. And we're like, what? And now, you know, Captain Tom, I, Lieutenant Thomas at the time was like, this is amazing. Like yeah. we're really doing great. Yeah. We didn't eat for two days after that. Uh-huh. So just the mind games that they would play with us and, um, it, but it was just a very intense academic, um, physical environment where you then had to, you know, be a leader and execute missions much like ranger school. Yeah. So, um, for the listeners, what you've just heard is this course is physically grueling. You're deprived of sleep. You're deprived of food. It's also psychologically grueling. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know what the Sapper instructor playlist on what their Spotify yeah. playlist sounds like, but if that's what you're listening to when you're eating, it's pretty phys- uh, psychologically grueling and it's intellectually challenging, meaning y- the the precision that it takes to do some of those engineering um, obstacles, uh, to create some of those charges, to, to do some of that, that complex math and science, that's not easy. Right. So you're yeah, getting it's tested very- in every way. You are, and it's, and it's got a, it has a pass rate similar to ranger school. People are only, you know, about 30, late thirties, early forties, you know, 35, 42% of people are passing the school. So it it is very rigorous. And now is the perfect time to say, and you become one of the first women to complete this course. Um, By the time that you finish, how many women have completed this APRA course? So when I graduated from Sapper school, I believe I was like the 78th woman to graduate. Uh-huh. So women, women have been going to Sapper school. A lot of people do not know this since the nineties. They, they never excluded women from Sapper school. And when Ranger school was starting up the entry of, of women into courses at Ranger school, they actually took, they spent some time down at the Sapper leader course to understand, yeah. you know, how they made it work to the Sapper school say, Oh, it's really no big deal, you know? And so, uh, but I was one of the very first women from my unit, um, to go through right. Sapper school and complete it successfully. Okay. Now we're going to turn a corner and we're going to talk about Ranger school, but before we get into Ranger school, um, it makes sense as a combat engineer that you would want to go to Sapper school because of how that prepares you to do your mission in combat. Mm-hmm. Ranger school is an incredibly challenging course, just like Sapper School is. But at this point, you don't have anything pushing you to go to Ranger School. In in other words, um, there's nobody forcing you into Ranger School. They didn't force you into Sapper School, but this is a little bit different. So before we even get into your experience in Ranger School, why do you want to go? You know, to be perfectly honest, at first I, I didn't. I for and for those points that you made exactly, it, it just to me didn't completely seem necessary. I had gained so much from Sapper School and absolutely encourage any any soldier, but specifically any leader, go to one of these courses where you're put under extreme stress. It really tells you a lot about yourself. And I went into those courses thinking that, you know on a scale of one to 10, you know, usually you operate around a five or a six. If you really need to push yourself, you get to an eight or a nine and you go through something like that. And you're like, holy shit, I can like push all the way to a 15. I didn't sleep for four days straight at sapper school. I mean, and that's not kind of the droning or Uh the falling asleep standing up, but you have no idea what your body is capable of. And you get a real appreciation for, you know, what you can really do. And it, and it, 
to be a leader and leading in stressful environments, to know that you always have a little bit more in the tank is, is very helpful. Um, and so I absolutely encourage all leaders to that, but yeah, I, I didn't particularly want to go, uh, to ranger school. It just, I didn't see the point. Um, and you know, for, for vanity, for, for better, for worse, I, I didn't want to shave my head. Uh, That's, and, I was going to get into that in just a second. Yeah. So yes, I, um, I didn't want to shave my head. Let's talk timing. Um, you are in the army when the army starts to open up the opportunities for women to go to ranger school. Is that right? It is. Yes. Yeah. Um, so right before you join, it is strictly prohibited for women to go to ranger school. Ranger school has been around for about 60 years at this point, but no women have been permitted to go to ranger school. There's been attempts in the past, but it's just been shut down. Now women are being allowed to go to ranger school and something prompts you to go ahead and to give it a try. We're going to talk about shaving your head in just a second, but what is the ultimate thing that causes you to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a shot. So when I was deployed, I worked with two infantry captains and I was in a mechanized unit. Fort Riley is a heavy unit. So there really were not a lot of ranger tabs around. Ranger mm -hmm. tabs are more common at light units. And so I, I didn't really understand what, you know, I know ranger school a little, you know, it was, it was hard, similar to sapper school. Um, but through being deployed with them, you got a lot of time on your hands. And there, of course, they're telling stories about ranger school yeah, or we're talking about tells war stories about how tough it was just to make themselves look good. Yes. And so hearing more stories about it and I think just learning more about the infantry and, and being intrigued and really realizing that as an engineer working with infantry, I had in my eyes kind of an obligation or duty to understand their branch right. as much as possible yeah understand what they've been through as much as possible. And so I was, and then, and then the more I heard about, it, I was like, that sounds fun. I was like, that definitely she sounds just like used the word fun to describe ranger school, which never happens in the same sentence. Yeah. It's, yeah. um, it ranges there. I mean, there's nothing quite like it. And, you know, Jeff, but, um, it started to appeal to me a little bit more. And then I was kind of realizing that, you know, when ranger school first opened up to women, I was in the, the very, you know, bulk of my lieutenant career. I was yeah. a platoon leader. Yeah. I was an executive officer. Then I deployed because I was an aide for a general. And so that's when I started learning about it. And I was like, well, I'm going to go to the maneuver course. And so I, in kind of in line with wanting to learn more and, and be more aligned with infantry, I decided that I would go to the infantry and armor captain's career course instead of the engineer course. So, which is at Fort Benning. Mm -hmm. So I was like, perfect time to go to ranger right. school. Um, okay, so now let's just go ahead and talk about Ranger School for a minute. Um, for those of you who are driving and you can't see Hillary, um, she has long, beautiful brown yep. hair. And when when Ranger School starts, every student, regardless of their rank, regardless of their job, no matter how old they are, their gender, all Ranger School students start on an equal platform, which means you take your rank off, you take all of your awards and decorations off, you go with what we call a sterile uniform and you shave your head. So I am just, uh, I can't imagine the decision to sit down in a barber's chair and have them shave off your long, beautiful brown hair, um, preparing for ranger school. That must have been a hard choice. It was, you know, so I, initially that was one of the reasons why I didn't want to go through. But once I, you know, understood that I wanted to do this and I, it was kind of something I was looking forward to. I mean, I was never going to shave my head for any other reason. So this once in a lifetime opportunity. Yep. 
you know, it, it, it seemed a little fun. And, um, you know, my friends would tell me, you know, oh, Hillary, like, hair will grow back, like a tab is forever. Like, and, and I'm curious, Jeff, could, so this is about how long my hair was when uh-huh. I shaved my head. Can you guess how long it took to grow? Well, back I was, to this okay. Leg? So before I do that, um, for those of you who are driving, especially for the ladies, you're saying this woman is insane. I would never shave my head. The, the hair has grown back and it looks like mm-hmm. her hair is about 20, 24 inches long now. So I'm mm-hmm. going to guess it took you two and a half years. That is actually an excellent guess. Yes. It took about three years. So it was not a little feat. And anytime I ever heard a guy complain like, oh man, I got to shave my head for ranger school. I'm like, dude, it'll take you two months to grow that back. Like we're talking years here. Right. So, um, but you know what, Jeff, I had fun with it. I was actually classing up uh, the very first class of the year. So I was a a winter ranger Uh uh, in January. Yeah, when it was when it's actually hard it going was through the winter time. Miserable. Yep. Yes. Very chilly. Um, and so we I just want to say me. real quickly, it's miserable in the summer. It's just a different kind of misery. Yeah. Yes, I would definitely agree. I'm I'm glad that I went in the winter time versus the summertime. Um, but I did it Christmas morning with my whole family. Oh yes. You shaved <laughs> so, your head on Christmas morning. Christmas morning, my little brother, that you know, little brother the that I Christmas mentioned. Christmas cards that you could have sent out that day, that would have been awesome. It would have been awesome. We had so much fun. You know, my little brother gets that first, you know, every little uh-huh. brother's dream, that big to chunk cut of their sister's hair off. Yep. Yes. Yes. Uh, my mom is like, oh, let's see what you look like with bangs. And we're trying, I mean, I've got a mohawk. I mean, we're doing all, so we had you know, I figured if this is the only time I'm ever going to do something like this, like let's, let's have, have a good fun time with, with it, it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you go to ranger school and just like sapper school, food deprivation, sleep mm-hmm. deprivation, ranger school is not teaching you how to be an infantry leader. It's just teaching you how to lead <laughs> warriors under the most challenging of circumstances, weather, yes. food, sleep, the terrain, all of it, you name it. Ranger school makes it as miserable as you can make it legally um, Mm -hmm. without killing somebody. And people do die in ranger school. It's that challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk a little bit about what it was like to be a woman. Um, One of the first few, you weren't the first. Um, There have been women before you, but not for very long. Um, And now you're a woman in ranger school. Were there any other ladies in your ranger class? So when I started Ranger School, Rap Week, the first four days of Ranger School, kind of the testing the initial... you out to see if you got what it takes to continue the course. Yeah, exactly. So you have to make it through those four days, and so traditionally, and if you know, um, but for your audience, it it, it eliminates about fifty percent. Yeah. So you start with with about four hundred or so, um, and and within those first four days, they're down to half of that. Uh-huh. So I started um, as one of eight women. And by the end of those four days, I was the only, only one lady left. standing, left standing. Yeah. The only um, one left standing. Um, and so it, to me, it didn't really phase me. And as we've kind of mentioned, I've gone through my career. I'm a little bit older at this point. Um, and I've gone through my career and I've been the only woman, um, even in, in college, ROTC construction, I'm kind of used to used to the game. It doesn't really phase me too much, um, you know, but it is. And it was very interesting too going through, um, you're just kind of another student there. And at least in my experience, and, you know, by that point, about 20 women had graduated, uh, over a hundred had attempted, but there weren't very, there wasn't yeah. a precedence, I would say. Yeah. Um, and 
Oh, go ahead. Well, I just want to point something out. Um, one of the reasons, one of the arguments that people gave for not allowing women to go to ranger school is because ranger school, at its essence, every single student, regardless of their background, their rank, their education, their um, age, and gender are all supposed to be treated exactly the same. And some people argued that's physically impossible to do with women. So I don't think I've ever had a chance to ask you this, Hillary. Were you treated virtually the same as all of the other students, even though you were the only woman in the course? Exactly the same, Jeff. And I've heard that before as well. People kind of question that. And I think anytime there's been rumors or discussion about, oh, well, I hear they're not treated the same. I've never heard that from someone who actually went through with women yeah. because you see there, I mean, it's all about surviving as right. a squad, yeah. as a platoon. It's just about you leaning on each other in the worst of po all circumstances. Yeah, exactly. And you have to be able to shoulder the same burden. And if you don't, you're just going to get, you're going to get cut. You're going to get peered. Um, and, and peering is the process of being voted on by your peers. And you can actually get dropped from ranger school if you do not score high enough among your peers. And it's, it's kind of a way to make sure that, you know, maybe the RIs if, are seen if in case it's a situation where the RIs are only seeing good performance, right. but they're really terrible to everyone yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah, it's the it's the course where you're being evaluated in virtually every uh, scenario. When you're in a leadership position, you're being evaluated by the instructors. When you're not in a leadership position, you're being evaluated by all your peers. And your peers are ruthless, and they mm -hmm. don't want you to finish the course if you're not uh, up to speed. So, yeah, um, you know food deprivation. You know sleep deprivation. Um, I do this segment called the high five and I have had a guest on in the past who really struggled with eating disorder and it, mm -hmm. it devastated her life. In your case, Hillary, um, my case in ranger school and lots and lots of arduous training in the military, there were points where I would have eaten if I could, but I just couldn't. Um, mm -hmm. and this is tr definitely true of you sapper school in ranger school and other really hard training. So let's just talk about what life is like. Let's talk about what happens to the body and to the mind when you've gone now days and days on end with little or nothing to eat. Um, by the way, I'm a guy who was very fit and very lean when I started ranger school. Um, I spent about two months in ranger school and I lost 40 pounds, which was at that point almost 20% of my body weight. I lost it mm -hmm. all in those uh or in those 60 days. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and I didn't have uh, excess body fat or right, body mass. Yeah. So I, I lost virtually 40 pounds of muscle mass um, while I was in ranger school. Uh, hey, quick note uh, I graduated on December 22nd, went on Christmas vacation the very next day, and put 50 pounds on in on, oh. on a two week Christmas break because I, I was just an eating machine for two weeks. Oh, that was perfect timing for you because you got all those great holiday treats. Yeah. I put on 50 pounds of fat in two weeks. <laughs> I don't even know how that's humanly that possible, is impressive. but I did it. That is impressive, Jeff. I don't, I don't think I could say that I did that same amount of work, but. Yeah. Uh, and then I came back and paid the price for it as soon as that yeah. vacation was over with. Okay. Um, top five things that happened to you physically or psychologically when you couldn't eat. Um, enough calories to even sustain your normal body functions for months on end. 
Um, I'll tell you my first, the first thought that as I was thinking about this is um, food started to become an obsession. Like Mm -hmm. everything about food started to dominate my mind. Even when I was going through very physically grueling stuff, my mind was on food instead of on what was happening around me. What about you? So I would echo that. And I don't even think I realized at the time how much it consumed my thoughts. So I will say that I was actually able to maintain a a notebook and and letters home to my parents. And so I would send a casual letter home and would get cards from them throughout Sapper and Ranger School. But when I finished, uh, my dad was chuckling and he was telling me, he's like, He's like the longer you the longer you were there and the more cards we got the more they were talking about yeah, food. Yeah, how about that? Um <laughs> and I didn't even notice it. My buddies in ranger school just incessantly talked about food and I used to tell them, "Would you guys stop? I can't <laughs> yeah. take all the the conversation it's about torture. food. It's torturing me right now. Just stop talking about it." Yeah. Um you already know this because you've been through this personally, but your body has a survival mechanism and that survival mechanism is to protect the brain. The brain needs blood, it needs oxygen, and it needs calories. So mm-hmm. when you're low on calories, it will shut down other organs to make sure that the brain has enough uh, calories. And I remember walking around like in a fog, not even aware of what's around me because my brain is so, um, you know, uh, few, so few calories that I'm mm-hmm. not even aware of what's going on around me. Do you, do you remember the brain fog while you're in ranger school? Oh yeah. The brain fog, especially I remember very vividly in Florida phase. So this is the final phase of ranger school. You are just so broken down, beaten yeah, down. Your body at this point. is a mess at this point. Yep. Oh gosh. It is, it is bad. And, um, I remember I was doing the planning for a mission that we were going to go on and I was trying, I was concentrating so hard. It was during, you know, daytime. And so there's plenty of light out and I'm trying to write and I I can't like get my hand to move. Yeah, your brain I, is moving, but oh, your hand is not. I can't. And I, my, my, my writing is blurry. My vision. I mean, I just, and I was like, come on, Hillary, like get your shit together. Like you've got to focus. Yeah. But it was so bizarre. And I just remember very consciously being like, how is it that my body cannot perform right now? Right. It, it It is all consuming. And no matter yeah. how much you try and will it, and eventually I was able to kind of get my shit together and, and muster out, you know, the lines of the, the op order that I was writing, but it was bizarre. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Ranger School really brought, I didn't realize how much of the big events of my life had a food component to it. Meaning Mm -hmm. it wasn't food that made the event awesome, but there was friends, there was a party, there was family around, and then they were around some kind of table. And all of a sudden, the big events of my life started to become food events instead of family or friend events when I was in ranger school. How about you? Any other memories of being that hungry? I So I I would say that the first thing comes to mind is we would gather at ranger school and we would talk about food. So I particularly have an affinity for sweets. So I somehow, you know, I was probably maybe a little bit opposite than you, Jeff, because I, I like to talk, talk about food and, you know, Oh, what are you going to eat after this? What's your first meal going to be? And so I remember gathering with, you know, those couple of friends and you're pulling security. So you're sitting there and you're trying to stay awake and you're like, Oh man, some, Nutella covered brownie M&Ms yep. on a cake sound really good right yeah. now. 
And that is a, you get a vivid picture. I was going to say almost everybody in ranger school has this um, hunger or this hang, this uh, desire for a specific dish that they mm. obviously can't eat. And it sticks with them in ranger school. Um, I don't know why. I don't even really like uh, Captain Crunch cereal. But for me, oh. I wanted a bowl of Captain Crunch cereal so bad. Um, and a, and a, uh, a bowl of raisins, or I mean grapes, right next to it. And that's what I was uh, uh, desiring the whole time that I was in ranger school. I thought where you were going with that was the Captain Crunch French toast that they have uh, at, is no. it Ruth Ann? Yeah. Uh-huh. That was always popular. Yeah. Um, did you have, uh, did ranger school change any of your uh, food habits? In other words, after you mm. came out of ranger school, if did it make something at the top of your list or did you just, did it make you like it did me say, I'm never going to eat that ever again? <laughs> so all two parts to that. So when I was going through ranger school, all I wanted was like a really decadent dessert. And so when I graduated, I, my sister is a, an amazing cook and I asked her and baker, um, I wanted a s'mores cheesecake. So she made the most s'mores delicious cheesecake. Oh. That sounds good. I, and I was so sick afterwards because I ate so much of it, but it was so good. But something really interesting that happened was after, so in Darby phase, you get a pass before you go into mm -hmm. mountains. So you have like eight hours to go out into Columbus, Georgia, pick up gear, um, get some real food. And I was craving sushi so bad. I was like, sushi, just, really? How weird. Wow. I, yeah, that is uh, weird. Very weird. Um, I don't know why. It wasn't even like sushi is my favorite food, but it's just something about sushi sounded so good. And so we went and ordered probably like $80 worth of sushi just for <laughs> of me. Of course, because you can rack up some money in sushi real fast. Yes, yes. And the very first bite that I took, it was just disgusting. Oh, and I immediately no. spit it out. And I did not eat sushi for probably about two years yeah. after that. I only just recently ate it at a work lunch because I was too embarrassed to say that I can't eat sushi. And then I was like, wait, actually, this isn't awful. Yeah. And now I eat sushi again and okay. love sushi. But it's bizarre what, you know, being in that type of environment can do to your, your taste buds yeah. or your, yep. the way you see food. For me, it was peanut butter. I loved oh, peanut butter before ranger school, and, and I didn't touch it for years. I still don't like peanut butter to this day. After ranger school, that it was a crazy. complete shift for me. Um, one last thing. You and I are just uh, going on and on about food like two ranger students right yeah. now. Um, <laughs> How typical. One last thing that I'll, I'll remember for a long, long time about ranger school is laying in the dirt next to my buddy. We haven't had showers for weeks. Mm -hmm. We've been uh, walking and sweating and we're dirty and miserable. And I'm laying right next to him in an observation position and we're cold, so we're close. And I start to notice this guy smells really good. And I don't mean like cologne good. I mean, sweet, like sweets, uh, you know, some like um, candies uh, kind uh -huh. of good. And, and that's when it started to dawn on me. Oh, you know what's going on? His body, your body starts to let off a sweet smelling sweat. 
when your body starts to consume muscle mass instead of oh, fat yeah. as a source of fuel. It's a, I learned about it after ranger school. It's a phenomenon mm-hmm. called ketosis and your mm-hmm. sweat actually smells sweet like candies. And I'm laying next to my buddy and I'm like, this guy smells good. Like if, <laughs> if he wasn't a human and alive next to me, I would try to eat this guy because he smells so good. But his body was literally burning muscle. Right. And one of those, um, one of those indicators is your sweat starts to smell sweet like candies. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. I've definitely, I mean, I've heard of that. I, I don't remember experiencing that. I just remember it smelling bad. So maybe I wasn't close enough. Well, or normally he paying. smelled really bad, but I'm laying right next to him and I'm like, <laughs> I am going to eat this guy right now. So that's maybe how just a bad, little lick. <laughs> yeah. That's how bad I had been affected by ranger school. Okay. We got to get off of the food thing. Um, by the time that you finish, I I just need the listeners to hear this. By the time that you finish ranger school, you are now a combat engineer who has both a sapper tab, very hard to get and a ranger tab equally hard to get, but Mm -hmm. almost nobody has both. So how many women before you have both of these have completed both of these courses? There were just two. So I was the third and the third woman in history to complete them both. Yes. Yeah. So it was pretty pretty unique. And definitely, you know, because we wear the tabs on our uniform, got lots of double, yeah. double heads and people be like, lots of people pointing at you when you walk by, right? Yeah. And they're like, what's wrong with you, ma'am? Like, why do you like to suffer yeah. so much? <laughs> Hillary, the reason why you're on this broadcast is because not just completing those arduous courses and all that it took for you to get through this, obviously you are an unbeatable woman, but in a couple of assignments, you are not just a lady, you're the only woman in the room. So for just a second, describe for the listeners what it was like for you personally to be the only woman in the room. Yeah, so it's something that um, maybe was a little bit overwhelming at first. And I, you know, eventually became pretty comfortable with it. But as a young leader, brand new to the army, I was figuring out a lot as I as I went. Um, it was something that I, I think I just kind of, it was lonely, I guess, just to, to not beat around the bush um, and to be straightforward about it. It was, it was pretty lonely at first because I was so conscious of the fact that all eyes were on me. I mean, when there's one woman in the room, everyone is going to notice her yeah. more than, you know, they're going to notice all the Even men around. Even if she has a shaved head because she just got out yeah. of ranger school, everybody is still going to notice you're a woman in an all-male room. Yes. And so I think especially early in my career, um, I was very conscious of that. And I was just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to screw up. I didn't want to be perceived in the wrong light. I didn't want to say something that was dumb because I just knew that I was going to be very harshly criticized for that. And for better, or for worse, you know, women that are serving in these positions for, as the, the first woman, the only yeah. woman, yeah. men oftentimes are using that is their judgment for all women. Right. And yeah. it's just, it's just the way that it is. Um, and so I think very early on, especially I was pretty quiet, pretty reserved. Um, and then, uh, you know, and just patient, I think to make sure that before I asserted myself in situations, I knew what I was talking about. I understood the people that I was addressing. And so I think it really just caused me to be very deliberate, um, and, and what I did and, you know, kind of, took some time to, to build some confidence in myself, um, before I felt, you know, like I could really speak up or speak out or feel comfortable in this situation. And, but then I, you know, I think throughout my career, I always approach things with a little bit of caution, yeah. um, and was just very 
careful for, for every, everything from, you know, if I needed to go down to the motor pool, I wouldn't just ask one young male soldier to go, you know, I wouldn't just ask the driver because I didn't want to be seen walking off down to the motor pool with just a young or just soldier. One guy. Like, yeah. Right. Um, cause then, you know, what, who knows what kind yeah, of rumors all would kinds start of rumors. from there. Yep. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. You're in a military unit where the majority of people are under the age of 22. So you can imagine the, the kind of testosterone and the hormones uh as well as the maturity level yeah yeah so different things you know i think i just approached my career with a little bit of caution um but you know i don't want to say that to kind of seem scary or i I had a fantastic career and and once i understood more and i think all lieutenants young lieutenants go through this you want to make sure that you're you're listening to the people around you you're you're so brand new and, and although you have this rank and authority yeah. that comes with being a new officer, you're not just going to go out there and, and start acting like you, yeah, you know everything. Right. Yeah. So um, I'd love for you to be able to speak, not just to women right now, because you felt the weight of all women um, on your shoulders when you're the only woman in the room. But there are people that are listening right now that are the first X, whatever the X mm-hmm. is, maybe the first person of color, maybe you're the first woman, maybe you're the first person to ever do this and everybody before you has been different than you and they're stepping into the world that you're in, that you were in, not once, but many times in your career, um, two different assignments where you're the only woman in the room. So what mm-hmm. piece of advice would you give them that are going into this thing and they're the first X? Yeah. Yeah. I think the lessons that I learned and can be applied to all sorts of different um, situations and people and circumstances. And I think that the first thing is, you know, you need to kind of approach it with a little bit of humility. Um, I think that allowed me to just be very open-minded, take a lot in, take in a lot of information, filter that, um, and be very deliberate with the choices that I made and the actions that I took. Um, With that, I think preparation is very important. So, you know, for me, it was uh, a, a mental or academic preparation, but it was also, as, and as we've discussed, a, a physical preparation. So when I'm leading these young men or I'm going to sapper school uh, or ranger school where I'm carrying 100 plus pound rucksacks and, you know, hauling all sorts of heavy equipment, you know, there's a physical preparation yeah. that I oh, need yeah. to do to maintain credibility. Um, and so, and then I would also say, you know, once you kind of assessed and you're, you're willing to, to learn about what you're walking into and you've, you've prepared for it, I think you just need to be able to be confident. You need to be confident in your, in yourself and what you've you know set out to do. Um, and then with that, it's very helpful to have a great support system. And I was so blessed that I had such a supportive family. I had such supportive friends. The leaders that I worked for in the military, uh, for the most part, were all very supportive yeah. of you know what I wanted to do. Yeah. So, um, Hillary, I want to wrap up with this. Being the only woman in the room, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. There's already pressure on you because everybody is now looking at you and to some degree judging your gender based on how mm-hmm. you perform. But you're inevitably putting pressure on yourself, too, because you recognize, as well as everybody around you, you're the only woman in the room. And no one's perfect. So you are going to mess up. Um, Can Mm -hmm. you just give a piece of advice to the person that's the first ex, and they're putting all kinds of pressure on themselves to be perfect so that they don't mess up for the people that are coming behind them? 
but you and I know as well as everybody else that you're not perfect. So they are going to mm -hmm. mess up. How do you pick yourself back up after you messed up and all eyes are, were on you before you messed up and now they're really on you? Yeah. You just can't quit. And I did not have a, a perfect, you know, when I was in sapper school, I recycled the first phase of it. So I finished that first portion, came up six points short, had to do it over again. I went through ranger school. I recycled Darby phase and then I recycled mountain phase. Awesome. So it was not a perfect time through by any means, but you know, I knew it going into it and I can absolutely say now sitting on the other side, you just cannot give up. Yeah. And so the perseverance, the ability to pick yourself back up again. And a lot of that, you know, it's interesting. I had to do myself in ranger school and sapper school. I was, I was a little bit isolated from my support system. I had fantastic peers in the course with me, but you just need to know that, you know, one failure is not reflective yeah. of, of you. And you just, you gotta, you gotta be like, okay, let's do it. Yeah. Let's go. Failure is not permanent. Get back mm -hmm. up and don't quit. Yeah. Great yep. advice. Um, Hillary, you are a leader that a lot of people, not just ladies, but a lot of people can look up to because you were willing to forge a path for the lot of uh, ladies to follow after you. And I just wanted to tell you, thank you for being my guest. Thank you for being the kind of woman who places a demo charge on the <laughs> glass ceiling and shatters it for other women to follow after you. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. Really appreciate your support and really have enjoyed chatting and kind of reliving some of the, the glory days at Ranger yeah, School. Yeah, how about those good times of Ranger School? Yes. Yeah, thanks. It's been great being with you. We'll see you around. Thanks so much, Jeff. Hey, there you have it. Like all of us, Hillary placed a lot of pressure on herself being the only woman in the room. And none of us are perfect. So when she messed up, when she failed, like you're going to mess up, like you're going to fail, like I do, like all human beings do. Take her advice. No matter how bad it gets, failure is not permanent. If you will get up, dust yourself off, and don't quit. That's why Hillary Thomas is a great guest on this podcast called Unbeatable of guys and gals that have just gone through incredible things and didn't let circumstances hold them back. Hey, if you found this podcast for the first time, we would love for you to stay connected with us. You can follow us on all of the prominent podcast platforms. If you've been listening for a while, why don't you go ahead and subscribe on your podcast platform or better yet, why don't you go ahead and follow us on social media? We're pretty much everywhere. Just search at Unbeatable Podcast. You can find us on almost all of the social media platforms. And I placed some of my lessons learned from the military into a really small booklet. I'm giving it away totally free. We call it the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide. And if you want that booklet, it's a PDF download, totally free. All you got to do to get it and learn about some of those lessons that I picked up along the way is go to unbeatablearmy.com. Hey, thanks for joining me for this episode. Can't wait to introduce you to my guest next week. Tune back in next week as we talk to this Olympic athlete. See you next time.